really the rocket project was about hope because the idea was how can we do something perceptively incredibly difficult within a school something that kids typically don't study at this age you know because it it's perceived as being too challenging yeah so like let's do rocket science and that's what we did this is high tech high unboxed i'm alec Patton, and that was the voice of andrew lorario andrew is a co-founder of blue dot education but before that he taught at high tech high for 16 years Andrew did a lot of cool projects, but that one that he just mentioned was something special. His students designed and built metal rockets from scratch, which they launched from the Friends of Amateur Rocketry's launch site in the Mojave Desert. The rockets went between 6,000 and 8,000 feet in the air and approached Mach 1. To be clear, this wasn't a specialist engineering course, this was just normal high school for these kids. And I should mention Andrew's teaching partner, Adam Boric, who also led that project. In this episode, Andrew talks about his approach to designing and running projects with students. I find his approach exciting and inspiring, and I also find it kind of terrifying. I think you'll get a lot from this conversation. Let's get into it. The legend, Andrew Lorario, is here, 16 years teaching at High Tech High, and we're here to talk about iterative project design. So the way you use it, what does iterative design mean? So iterative design to me is a way of uh, beginning with something that is really small and easy to access, uh, something that is representative of the work that is to come. It allows kids to participate in something. So for example, if we were doing a project that was around, let's just say skateboard building, you know, and we want to kind of get kids to participate in the community of practice of engineering, computer assisted design stuff, building a skateboard. A lot of that stuff is high end stuff. And to get there, how are we beginning? What are we starting with? So I would have them make like a tech deck or play around in Tinkercad or do something that is really accessible and have them kind of work through some of those kinks. Along the way, they're reflecting, they're documenting, they're speaking about, they're sharing, they're communicating, they're learning. We're having class sessions where we're identifying the values within this space. So it's not kind of like this narrow set of values in a learning space that, that has been defined before we even get into there. So the kids have no place to contribute or participate in that community. Um, it's about kind of creating a space where that can all emerge from the process of going through there. So the first iteration is something easy, quick, very fast, very rapid, something that can then be done again. Usually within the first two weeks, I like to get through like two, three iterations of something. So is that skateboard project something you actually did? Uh, I'm developing it right now, actually, for an after-school program in the South Bay area. A lot of them are interested in skateboarding, so I was thinking how might I roll this out in a way that can rapidly in an after-school space where kids have already spent a day in school kind of get at it and you know get working can you give an example of this like in a project that you did sure i did uh, a rocket project here at high tech high we started on the first day where the iterative design actually kind of goes back to this idea of like sharing the cognitive load i think teachers try to think of like all the outcomes in a project that are going to happen and they try to like wrestle with that and then like think of like all the different things that come up in a project how might we have an answer and i think the idea of sharing the cognitive load is that you don't have to have an answer you can work with kids and you, as the project unfolds things are going to emerge that that end up answering some of the things you were wrestling with and so i just did this rocket project i don't know how to build big rockets but that was the goal so as an adult learner, I engaged with the kids and I said, what can we what can we start with? Well, let's just start with paper rockets. On the first day, we just rolled up some paper rockets. We put them on a tube, had it connected to, you know, a two liter bottle that we stomped on. And from there, they came up with ideas. Well, what if we actually make like a pressurized launcher? So we did that. What do we learn about rockets? After the first time that every kid launched a rocket with minimal instruction, I think that's important for the first iteration. 
is you know give them a space where they can get used to engaging from a, an intuitive creative space. Why is that minimal instruction important? Because I, th I think it's good to have kids be asked to rely on their intuitive creativity when they engage with something so that that becomes an unset expectation in the work that you're not going to be told what to do and how to do it you are going to be giving a creative capacity within this work and we want you to exercise that and we want you to speak to that in the end so that your voice is valued your creativity is valued and we're you know augmenting kind of what is valued within the community that we're building and what when kids are building paper stomp rockets with minimal instruction mm -hmm. What's your kind of broad expectation of like how many of those are going to be functional? I think maybe if you get like, you know, a couple of them functional out of the whole thing, even if one is functional out of the whole thing, it gives you an ability to kind of set them up. Say, for example, you could do a gallery walk after that, you know, or you, kids took a video of them all. You watched them all. Which ones worked? Which ones did it? Can we put ones that kind of perform similarly together and look at like what are the designs that contributed to it? And then we start to wrestle with those ideas. So we, you start to converge through the experience towards design principles for this work. For people who aren't familiar with the term, what is a gallery walk? So that would be like at the end of, you know, doing an experience or building something and testing it out. You set up all the work, you know, uh, and everyone gets a chance to kind of roam throughout the room and identify things within the work that you're looking at through a lens for the project. Or you're, you're giving feedback on the work for people to kind of like get feedback and look at it. So it kind of takes all the work that's happened in the classroom and puts it out in a gallery so that it's shared to the entire community rather than just being given back to the teacher, you know. As these kids are walking around looking at their peers' paper rockets, how do you scaffold that? What are you telling them to look for as they walk through that space? What instructions are you giving them? We're starting with just feedback, you know, because I think there's a lot of things within that creative space that kids put into their work that they'd like to get feedback on. So we have them prepare their work with questions that they might want answers on so that the students that are roaming around can give that feedback. So the kids are literally responding to the questions. So if I, I make my rocket that sort of breaks and doesn't really mm -hmm. do that much, yeah. and then I set it down, and then I jot down some questions for kids to respond to as they come around and look at it. Yeah, that, you know, but there there might be some, like, aesthetics work in there. Like, what do you think about this? Like, what is the thing that you're most proud of in the rocket? And what do you want to get feedback on? Or what is something you might want to help with? As you go through multiple iterations, this becomes more focused. Kids get used to that process and they tend to respond to it more. And they even like start operating within the building process and the design process, knowing that's gonna come. And so it, it shifts kind of their dispositions towards the work and you know, as the as you go through this iterative process. So was the second iteration another improved paper rocket or were you moving on to yeah that? it was let's do this one again, like that day let's do it again which ones worked which ones didn't work what are the characteristics of the ones that we saw that did work how are we implementing them in our designs and then you start getting into some of the deeper questions why is it working and then it's like okay now we can start looking at the math the physics we can start looking at how we can intentionally design better you know models moving forward and eventually we got into kit build rockets that we were building from scratch with like you know wrapping paper around tubes and gluing it we were building our own When you motors. say kit, to me as a like non-rocket scientist, that sounded like a contradiction in terms that it was a kit-built rocket that you built from scratch. Yeah, Wouldn't well, it be one of the yeah, other? Yeah, it would be a scratch built So we modeled it off of the kit, like the SDs kits that you would get, which are the normal model rocket kits. Okay. We looked at that and we're like, how can we make that? And so we started playing around with materials. Um, the thing about rockets is a lot of the designs scale up, you know, the same. And eventually, by the end of the project, kids were running their own uh, teams, because throughout the iterations, they identified the things that they were good at and the things that contributed to a team collaborative uh, structure. And um, they had their own kind of like flight teams of five kids. And they built huge metal rockets that went 
8,000 feet, Mach 1. We launched it at like a site, and they knew all the math and everything in there. But that emerged through the questions and the iterations and the unpacking and the kids being able to identify what worked for them throughout that project. Were there times that you were just like, man, I could just tell them all how to do this and we would save three weeks? Did you, did you ever have that feeling as a teacher? I, I, I think sometimes if you've done it and you know it, but I think that's not something to keep from kids. I feel like in this iterative cycle, this communal learning structure, I feel like the teacher is more of a, a facilitator and more the adult learner in that space. Because in a community, everyone brings things to the table. And so you as a teacher, you bring you know, your, your mastery of subject content, which is one part of doing the project. It's not all of it. And you also bring this kind of adult learning habits towards the project work itself. And I think those are the things that really transfer onto the kids through this iterative cycle. So I would never tell them how to do it, but I would share like, this is my approach to trying to figure this out. And these are the things I have figured out when I've done this approach. And I'm going to kind of like engage all of you in a similar approach and see what you guys figure out. And then we're going to come back together and share what we have. And so even though I might be confident that I have an answer, I would never be confident that it's the answer. And I would always try to invite more kids into that space, even if the, the things that they were contributed might not move like the way we were going to proceed or shift it that much. Their voices are still being heard. We're still considering that. And we're still and oftentimes it does change a lot about the way we're going to proceed. So if I'm a teacher listening to this and I'm like, okay, I got it. They're going to build paper rockets and then they're going to build rockets using stuff that we can get our hands on that mimic how a kit rocket works. And then eventually they're going to be building metal rockets that go beyond the speed of sound. Great. Got it. Done. I'm going to go do that. Mm -hmm. What are the easy ways for that to go wrong? Like what should a teacher be like wary of taking that approach? I think planning with too many end expectations in mind. I think trusting the process is more important. Like I never knew we were going to end by building those big rockets, but the energy of the classroom, which I think is important for a teacher to be more of a conduit of energy instead of shutting it down oftentimes when you have too much of like, these are the expectations I have of where this project is going. And even though you might have a great idea, it doesn't align with where I have expected that this is going to go. And so they kind of shut down that energy. And mm -hmm. I think it's more important to follow where it's going. So if you trust in the process, it leaves the opportunity open to really follow those creative energies within the classroom. Again, you got to be intentional about, you know, you can't follow everything that spiders off. But I think if you, if you build, like, what is the next step from here? What are the interesting questions we want to pursue from this one? And it doesn't necessarily lead to, like, a, a fancier, shinier product we're going to put on the wall. But it definitely leads to a better experience. And the students are going to have a more important a personalized story to share at the end of this you know, during an exhibition or showcase of sorts. But I mean, I assume when you start with those paper rockets, you're in your mind, even if you're not stuck on it, you do have an idea of where you think you're headed. Yeah, but it's more like loose. You know, I showed a video of a metal rocket going off in class on the day when I was like, I want to get there. I don't know how far we'll get, but let's, that'd be really cool to do. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, it's just kind of like a, like a buy-in, you know, vision kind of thing. Do you have an example of a project where you were like, Here's our here's our, our day one, our mm -hmm. first iteration. I think that first iteration is heading here, but actually where the class ended up taking it was a totally unexpected place. Has that ever happened? Yeah, that's happened a ton of times, actually. So I can talk a little bit about that with a, with a jewelry making project uh, that I've done. Again, like I went into this space not knowing too much. Uh, I had a student that had played around with it as a side project in class for a while, which is where a lot of it has come from. You know, if there's a space where a kid can kind of experiment a little bit in addition to the work. 
where it was laboratory work. They're, they're going out on hikes, he's getting stones, he's cutting them open, he's polishing them, and he's learning about them. That process was really cool. And I saw that being engaging for other students. And I was thinking, next year, I'm going to develop a, a jewelry-making project around this work, laboratory work. Um, What's that word you're saying? A lapidary. That that's just like a. It's a machine that polishes and shapes stones. You know, oh. rocks and things like into. Is it like the rock tumbler or something? A rock tumbler it does similar things, but it just kind of tumbles rocks. A lapidary. So there's different machines for this. The one that I use, the flat lapidary machine, it's just a spinning disc, a grinding wheel, and you, you know, grind down stones to a certain shape and polish that you want. You know, oh, cool. then you can put it into like pendants or jewelry or necklaces, things like that. So I got a lot of these machines in the classroom. And, you know, the idea was like, I'm just going to get a bunch of these stones and bring them in and, you know, just order them. And we're going to chop them up with a rock saw and we're going to polish them. But then some of the kids were like, oh, my dad is into this. And he goes out on hikes here or like, you know, my cousin or my mom does this stuff. And so we're like, well, let's go on a hike. And so we went out on a hike and then we started collecting some rocks that we would bring back. But then the kids started noticing other things in the hike. And they started connecting to kind of like people that have relationships in those spaces, um, you know, park rangers, people from the, you know, indigenous communities that have like relationships with the land and they can speak more to that. So this opportunity to like engage with community partners in these spaces and to see what perspectives they bring to the work, that shifted this entire concept that I had in the beginning of this work where we're just going to make some cool rock jewelry stuff now it became you know this this idea of like how does this connect to kind of the way that people look at the land the way that we engage with the land conversations about you know natural parks came up uh doing more outdoor experiential learning you know kids started making bent wood jewelry where they were gathering gathering wood from these spaces and wetting it and bending it around like a socket and then like laying it down like you know this this was made from that actually oh wow for the so, for the listeners, he's holding up a ring that it would not have occurred to me was student work. That's awesome. So it 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 just emerged. Some kids got into macrame and beading, and then they started connecting with communities that were doing that. So I think the mechanism that shifted the work was really engaging with the community partners around the work that was happening, and seeing what value those communities of practice or those just communities that exist, you know, uh, bring into the work, and then being able to explore those as well okay real quick that's your wedding ring finger yes did you ask a kid to make your wedding ring how did that we had we had a, a socket in a, in a toolkit that was the same size as my wedding ring and so we wrapped the wood around that you know because it's like a it was just a piece of thin like veneer kind of mm-hmm. that we that we found and they wrapped it around that and then you know when it dried you know we just used a lot of super glue and put it on like a little mini lathe and sanded it down and that was basically it it was pretty pretty easy actually Cool. So, so that was your repl- that's a replacement wedding ring, then. Yeah, yeah. This isn't the wedding ring. This wasn't you know on the day. Like, got it. You know, got my it. Wife got didn't it, got bust it, got out it. a student. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What ultimately did you exhibit from that project? So kids were making all their own jewelry. And they were giving it to like people, which was a whole another story. Like, who are you going to give this to? So there's an audience. Um, so parents came in and they were able to share kind of like the stuff that they got. And the kids actually made a bunch of things that were all on display. Some of them sold some pieces, but they did make one final piece for the school, which was we had this geo that we chopped this big slab from, drilled a hole out from the center and put a clock mechanism in. And uh, there was a teacher there, uh, the name of Blair Hatch, that actually had this idea and we kind of ran with it. And each kid polished a stone for the hours and, you know, around the clock. And 
it just became kind of this this polished stone piece that went up in the school, so it represented kind of the entirety of the work. Oh, so cool. And kids got to speak a little bit about what was meaningful for them in a project. I think that's really important, and it happens in the iterative design, that kids are allowed to identify the things that are significant in their learning. And that becomes part of the things within that community of practice that you're developing within the classroom that become the new educational currency, I guess. Like, those are the things that are valued. It's not the narrow scope of some rubric that was, you know, applied before we even started the work. Uh, and so kids are able to participate and contribute. They develop a signature within that space. And I, I think signature work for a kid or for anyone is work that you know whose it is without their name on it because they're able to contribute to that space in a way with their creativity and the choices they've made that creates something that is unique and speaks to who they are. So one thing that I found as a teacher was that the dynamics within and between students are way more powerful than the dynamics between you as a teacher and those students. And something that I would see play out a lot is that we'd be doing a project, one group of kids would get stoked about something Another group of kids would be like, well, if they're stoked about it, we think it sucks. And it was because, like, they had this kind of sense of who they were and them kind of defining their little crews in opposition to each other. Mm -hmm. Maybe that just never happens to you, but do, what, did you, what do you do? That no, that's happens? real. I think in those spaces, you slow it down. You know, sometimes, like, the goal for continuing the project can, and moving forward and covering content and covering things can weigh so much on a teacher Sometimes it can be a lot helpful just to slow it down and have conversations with kids in the classroom. What kind of space do we want this to look like? And I think a lot of that comes down to where kids might not feel ownership in that space, too. You know, like, how are we giving them ownership? I think that's the biggest thing in education. Education has been, learning has been reappropriated and governed by a separate entity from the individual within an educational space. How are we creating the structures to give kids choices, to let them kind of see the, the ramifications of their choices and to own it and to, you know, own the things that come out of their creative stuff. So I think three things that I look at in that slowing down process is how are we decentralizing the class so those kids have a space in it? How are we personalizing it so they can speak to some of the things, you know, that, that matter to them or see themselves in the work? And how are we sharing cognitive load so the teacher isn't just dictating what to do and how to do all the time that the kids are participating in that? And I think when you start slowing down the classroom and engaging in those conversations, kids start to have a little bit more buy-in. Even if they don't like something, they know that their voice will be heard if they can communicate about what they don't like. And then maybe follow up with an expectation about what can we change, yeah. you know? And so, cool, you can be in charge of this change. You are the person who is responsible for this. Let's let's follow through with it, you know, so that your, your voice is honored in the space, you know? Yeah, that uh, reminds me that I found that like, probably like 90% of the like disciplinary problems or issues that we were ha having, cultural issues we were having in the classroom stopped being problems if you just had a conversation without an audience with like an individual kid or a small group of kids mm -hmm. where you just took the time to have that conversation. It's like, it's magic. Yeah, kids want to be noticed. Yeah. You know? They, they want to be noticed. And, and think about it, you know, like, even as a teacher, if you're in like a really traditional space where everything's been dictated to you that you have to cover, uh, you know, they, they tend to get worn out. They're like, all right, I'll, I'll do my job, they call it. You know, like, I'll just, I'll do what's being told for me. You know, and I think kids kind of feel the same way. You know, they're like, if I'll, I'll do what I'm told to do. And at a certain point, you know, you might just feel like, you know, you're not, your identity is being realized within that space, you know. Yeah. So, so your former colleague, Jeff Robin, has a phrase often quoted, do the project yourself first. Yeah. 
this seems like a different approach. No, I think you still do it enough to get started. But yes, I would also say that it does go against it a little bit because this is the the model I'm proposing is more emergent within the space. Yeah. And and Jeff I think thinks more about like how are we planning out the entire project. It's really good advice. Uh, I think you want to do I think if you were to marry the two, I think it's like know enough to get started so that you know you can at least do that first or second iteration with some base set of knowledge where you you have an understanding of some of the outcomes and how you're going to facilitate you know the work in the classroom around that yeah so. at the very least you're saying hey here's a stomp rocket that i built here's what i found doing it yeah and i think that's the way you said that is really important this is one that i did it doesn't necessarily have to be the one that you make and this is where like essential question comes in because an essential question kind of gets to the heart of why we're doing this work and if you create a model of something you're not saying make this model the way i did but really what you're saying, this is my interpretation in the creative space that I've had within this question to create this thing. I want you to exercise your own creative capacity within this question and see what you come up with. And if you're stumped, you can look at this model to understand some of the creative choices I've made and what the outcome was. So, so. when you were building Stomp Rockets, what was your essential question? Do you remember? Um, I guess the essential question was, is can, can we do rocket science? And really the rocket project was about hope. Because the idea was, how can we do something perceptively incredibly difficult within a school? Something that kids typically don't study at this age, you know, because it, it's perceived as being too challenging. Yeah. So like, let's do rocket science. And that's what we did. And so by the end of it, the, the outcomes that I was looking for, the measures, was kids being able to have a greater sense of confidence and hope for the things that they could accomplish. Because they had a sense that they, they already did rocket science. They can do anything. You know, that was the idea. Yeah. And then, what was the essential question for the jewelry project? There wasn't really an essential question for the There was more just like, how can we engage in this learning? I think if I were to look back on that and re-engage with that, I think a good question would be, what does it mean to be indigenous to space? Because like going back and re-exploring that, you know, a lot of times, especially in Western culture, we have this separation of the outdoors from who we are, like our spaces, right? And when you look at it from, I think, more of that indigenous angle, I don't mean to speak to something that I don't know a lot about, but it's more of like, how are we living with nature, right? Mm -hmm. How are we a part of the system? How are we understanding the give and take from our actions within a space, right? And the values that come out of that. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Cool. High Tech High Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. You can find out more about Andrew and Adam Bork's work in our show notes. Thanks for listening.